This episode is supported by Dermavant. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Well, I'm Dr. Jim Del Rosso, and I'm with uh, someone that over the past few years, known her for quite some time, but definitely over the past few years, I've really come to enjoy her professionally, but personally, she's just a great person. So I'm very happy to be talking today with Dr. April Armstrong, who's Professor and Chief of Dermatology at UCLA. And I'm sure uh, you've had to be living under a rock if you not had some kind of contact uh in some way with April Armstrong because she's involved in so many areas and psoriasis is a big one. So April, how did you get, first of all, welcome. And, and how did you get started in psoriasis? How did you get started in psoriasis? Um, first of all, I want to say, Jim, it's an honor to be on here and uh, to talk with you. And I've really enjoyed my interactions uh, with you over the years as well. Um, I got interested in psoriasis uh, when I was in residency. And that was actually a time when, for example, adalimumab was being evaluated uh, for uh potentially being a biologic to treat psoriasis. So as you can imagine, that was a long time ago. Uh, but I really enjoyed the ability to take care of patients longitudinally and also take care of patients uh, regardless of their age, as you know, psoriasis affects uh, everyone. So I got this interesting psoriasis and it was a booming area. And there were a lot of great clinical research that was happening in the area. Um, so I got a, a degree in MPH uh, and, and really studying at that time epidemiology of comorbidities with psoriasis. Uh, so since then, I have been uh, really just passionate uh, about the different aspects of treatments that we have and as well as some of the epi work in the area. So you MPH is a master's in public health, right? So, yes. You know, so, uh, and you talk about a long time ago without alimumab. A long time ago is when I came in and we were slathering people with tar and treating them with Geckerman. And it was a big deal when we eventually got methotrexate. And uh, that's a long time ago. That's a long time ago, April. So, April, what I want to talk to you about today is, you know, we've had a limited uh, selection of non-steroidal topical agents like we've had with calcipatrine and tazarotene are the ones that have been approved. And they, they both had significant limitations. So we often topically were going back to topical corticosteroids very frequently and try to figure out ways to use those in the long term. You know, we've had advances with both topical topinarov and topical rifumilas. But today I want to talk about aryl hydro hydrocarbon receptor modulation, which is the mechanism of action of topinarov, which is FDA approved as Vitama uh, in, in patients with psoriasis. So why is this particular mechanism, why is it recognized as having a role? Why is it important uh, to learn about? Uh, can you make Jim Dorasso a little smarter with some information? 
Well, it's hard to make Jim Dalrosso any smarter because you are already very, very smart and intelligent. So, but I'm hoping that I will share something. You are with the so audience. smooth, April. You are so smooth. Oh no! <laughs> but I'm hoping that I'll share something with the audience. Hopefully, that will be uh, of use and, and helpful. Um, so, the story of Tapinarov uh, is actually a very interesting one. Um, so, Tapinarov is a naturally derived aerohydrocarbon receptor agonist. And the story kind of actually involves three different players, if you could imagine. So imagine that one has a large insect host. And inside that host, inside that insect host, are these round worms. And the large insect host actually lives symbiotically with these round worms inside of it. And then uh, inside the gut of the roundworm, there are these bacteria uh, that live in the gut of the roundworm. So what happens is that when the roundworms enter an insect host, its intent is actually to keep the insect host alive so that the roundworm, that would be beneficial to the roundworms to keep the insect host alive. So upon entering an insect host, the roundworm then releases uh, a gram-negative bacteria called photoraptus luminescence. And this gram-negative bacteria is actually the key. This bacteria helped to preserve the insect tissue. And so Tepenorov is actually a result of research uh, and that derives from the metabolite of this gram-negative bacterium. So when you think about it, it's the, the discovery of this is actually really cool, that it's discovered uh, from this sort of this natural phenomenon um, that the scientist discovered. So these insects basically found the fountain of youth, which we're still looking for in humans. They figured out how to, you know, with that relationship. That, that's fascinating. Oh, that and the, the Pinarov is a big part of doing this, right? Yes, yeah. And then, um, so when people looked into this a little bit further, uh, what they noted is that if you use this metabolite uh, of this bacterium and they engineered it for it to be Tepinarov, what happens is that Tepinarov can cross the cell membrane and actually uh, directly binds to the AHR transcription factor. And this particular Tepinarov AHR complex can then move into the nucleus. It binds an additional partner called ARNT which can then facilitate the transcription of a number of uh, genes. And so the result of all that activity is that you actually get decrease in terms of the TH17 cytokines, which we know that the TH17 cytokines are critical to psoriasis pathogenesis. Um, you also get an increase of the antioxidant activity uh, through the NRF2 pathway, which is something novel that was discovered. Um, so the Tepinarov binding can decrease the oxidative stress in the skin. Um, it also has some other effects, such as decreasing Th2 cytokines, which Jim, as we know, can decrease inflammation in atopic dermatitis. Um, and then finally, can also increase some of the filaggrin or loroquine or involucrin production, uh, to help with the skin barrier. Those structural proteins, so it's barrier, it's improving the skin barrier. Yes. It's almost like, you know, finding penicillin, you know, just by chance. And all these discoveries are not what you're looking for. Um, and uh, it's, it's like meeting people or getting, you know, it just happens. It's a serendipity, I guess. It's a, it's a story of mm -hmm. serendipity. So now we have this compound that, went into a variety of different trials to look at its, you know, 
basic science evaluation to look at basic, you know, what is it genotoxic? Is it phototoxic? And it goes through all these initial steps. And now you're going into clinical trials to see if what was hypothesized um, really turned out. And so what happened in the, in the phase two and phase three trials with Tepinarol for plaque psoriasis? Yes. So Tepinarov, um, after it's discovered, uh, then thought was thought to be very promising, and then went to went into the clinical trials. So in the phase three trials, and there are two of them, and those are the pivotal studies. They're called soaring one and two. So they took patients with plaque psoriasis, adults with plaque psoriasis, and they treated with. Uh, Tepinarov cream 1% every day for 12 weeks. And then they looked at the endpoint of POSI 75. So what they found is that about 40% of them, uh, when you pull the results of the both trials, achieved POSI 75 at week 12. And that's compared to about 6-7% in the placebo group. And this was very notable because up till now, when we look at our non-steroidal agents, the efficacy had been disappointing. So when Tepinarov unveiled uh, its data in terms of the phase three trial, we noted that the uh, efficacy is very good for, especially for a non-steroidal topical agent. And it was consistent. There are the two phase three trials. It was consistent. They, they The results almost fell right on top of each other between the two trials. Not exactly, but there was a consistency between the two trials, which is nice to see because there's different investigators and different patients, right? So, yes. so it worked out, but psoriasis is a long-term disease. We're not stopping at 12 weeks. So I, I know they, 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 being involved, I was involved with these trials also, or familiar with a lot of this, you know, there was long-term extension. And they did something very interesting where typically we talk about clear or almost clear, because those are parameters that are being used in the studies and that the FDA puts upon us in the in their protocols. But patients would like to be clear, right? Mm-hmm. We'd like to be completely clear. And they looked at that in the long term, where they, they came up with also looking at the remittive effect. So I'd like to define this more, because remittive effect has no formal definition in the literature or by agencies like the FDA. It has to be defined by whoever's talking about their remittive effect with their therapy. So can you expound on some of this a little bit? Long-winded, typical Jim Del Russell, long-winded question, but I know you can handle it, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So as you said, uh, Jim, long-term results are very important. And uh, at 12 weeks, we talked about it's POSI 75. Uh, I also just want to briefly mention that 12 weeks, the PGA response, which is a proportion of patients achieving clear or almost clear, is also around 40% for Tepinarov. So long-term, in terms of the definition of remittive effect, is if you take someone who had been using Tepinarov daily, and then when they achieve PGA of zero. So when they achieve clear, and then PGA, you tell them- PGA, Physician Global Assessment. It's like the IGA, Investigative Global Assessment, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So when they achieve, after daily use, at, when they achieve clear, if you tell the person to stop using the medication, and then look at the period thereafter by which they're able to maintain clear 
or almost clear. So that's the definition of the remittive effect. So it's looking at the period at which the patient can maintain clear or almost clear skin after achieving clear. April, this is valuable information. I'm going to ask you to just hang tight uh, while we have a word from our sponsor, and then I'll be getting back to you to continue our discussion. This episode is supported by Dermavant. So they get to clear at whatever point. So they didn't necessarily get to clear at the 12 weeks, but anybody that was in that initial trial could roll over and they were all, if they were already clear, they waited to see when they were no longer clear or almost clear. And if they went into the extension and they weren't clear, they continued till they got to clear then they would stop and only restart if the investigator, when they evaluated them, said they weren't maintaining clear or almost clear. Is that, that's how it was done? Yeah, that, right. that pretty much, yes, yeah, sums it. So that's how it was done. So as you can imagine, each person may have a different time frame when they achieve clear. And once they achieve clear, then they stop the medication. And then essentially, uh, we measure the time of when they have maintained clear, almost clear. When they got to mild, that's when the medication can be restarted. And so what they found is that the ability to you know, maintain this remittive state essentially was around four months or so, such that a patient can be treated too clear and then they stop the medication. It took a median of four months before the patient will come back as mild. So so I think this is probably very much mimicking the real world use of Tepinarov or, or any other um, topical medications. Oftentimes we encourage our patients to, for example, um, to p- potentially do this proactive treatment. But most of our patients, when they see their skin is clear, oftentimes drop off in terms of their adherence. So now we know that likely, even if they stop the medication, it would take about a median of four months uh, before they get to the mild severity. And it could have been a new area that was emerging also that wasn't previously treated, right? Because patients develop new areas. So they weren't limited to mapping just where they started in the very beginning of the study. If they develop new areas, they could apply there. And I think one of the the beauties of this therapy, anywhere they have psoriasis on the skin, they can use it, right? It's not limited to certain locations. You could use it on the face where with corticosteroids we have you know, some of these issues as far as where or how long or what the potency is. You obviously use this. You use a lot of therapies for psoriasis, topical and systemic phototherapy. Uh, I, I could only imagine your bag of tricks that you, that, that you have in your clinics because you see a lot of it. You know, how do you apply this remittive effect in your clinical practice with patients? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I think different dermatologists will do it differently. I still adhere to, for example, the AAD recommendations, which is you want to treat something to clear. And once it's clear in the clinically um, quiescent areas, but the areas that tend to re- re- recur and the patients know where those areas are, and then treat them with whatever agent uh twice a week, um, typically Monday and Thursday, for example. Um, so to to try to 
decrease the recurrence. What I typically do is actually have patients, once it's clear, if it's an area that tend to come back quite often, to treat the area then on the weekends because it's just easier for them to to remember. So with Tepinorov, uh, what I ask people to do is treat it every day until the area is clear. And then on the weekends, um, do it Saturday and Sunday because it's easier for them to remember. And uh, um, as a ma- as a maintenance, uh, uh, maintenance therapy, I find that when you do it that way, they're much less likely to recur. Uh, and knowing that in the real world, that Many of them, uh, we know that the adherence to topical therapies um, is only 30% in the real world. Uh, So we know in the vast majority of patients, they are probably actually doing what the trial is intended to see how things can turn out in the real world. So in the real world, they're likely, see it's clear and they probably stop the medication, but I would likely be able to kind of forecast how they would do off therapy. So I still encourage them to um, to use it on the weekends only to prevent uh, it from coming back. Uh, but knowing that in the real world, they're likely uh, going to be practicing it more like the, the, the trial was designed. And the beauty of it is if they forget that I apply it on Sunday and they apply it on Tuesday and they used it three times or four times with this therapy, you're not concerned like you might be if you were utilizing clobetazole or something else. How much are they actually using? You know, we, we really we know that from a toxicity standpoint and a side effect standpoint, we really don't need to be concerned, even if they were using it every day for months and months. So, so that's a nice cushion of safety. So what about this concept that I've heard you, you know, uh, and others at the podium talk about treat to target? Is that clear treat to target? Is, can you define what treat to target means? Yes, absolutely. So treat to target is a concept uh, that was developed a few years back by the National Psoriasis Foundation. And um, and I was uh, one of the people who was involved in with that effort. And treat to target is um, the concept that if we can get our patients with psoriasis to an ideal target of 1% or less body surface area, um, then they essentially have relatively good control in that the psoriasis will not impact um, their lives uh, to, a, to a great extent. Now, of course, our patients want their skin to be clear, and that's no question about it. Um, but the target is there so that we can work towards something at the time aspirational, but now I think it's much more realistic, uh, such that as clinicians, we can set a standard uh, towards which that we can work. Um, And then so for treat to target, there were um, some efforts uh, with study efforts looking at patients on Tepinorov and their ability to achieve 1% or less of BSA, uh, which is a target that we were aiming at. So what, how did Tepinorov do in getting patients to, to treat to that target? Yes. So uh, when the phase three data was analyzed, uh, what they saw was that about 40% of the patients on Tepinorov achieved this stringent MPF target of 1% or less BSA within three months. And 60%, about around 60% achieved a BSA of 1% or less at any time. And the medium time to achieve that is around 
four months. Um, so I would say that this is pretty impressive data for a topical therapy, uh, which was used in the clinical trials where the majority of the patients uh, were moderate in, tr- in terms of their severity. Yeah. I, I, I also think that, you know, in people's minds, it's almost like cryotherapy for actinic keratosis when you're thinking about how that does versus utilizing the topical treatment. There's a reflexly thinking that the cryotherapy's response rate or clearance rate of actinic keratosis is 100%. When you actually do studies that drill down on that, it's not. With corticosteroids, even with superpotent, you're not getting everybody to completely clear um, within two weeks or four weeks or six weeks. It may get more people to that point, but they're not 100% either. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have, we, that's one of the things uh, we always have to remember. So on the other side of the coin, you know, and also keeping in mind that over 90% of these patients after the initial 12 weeks wanted to go into the extension. Most of the people that were on this therapy, even the ones that didn't completely clear, they wanted to stay on it and they didn't have a lot of dropouts over time. Is that your understanding? Yes. Most patients stay on the medication um, because they thought it was being very helpful to them in the long-term extension. And they weren't concerned about, you know, how long they were using it or where they were using it. So as I mentioned, what about the other side of the coin? You know, Mm -hmm. from everything that I've seen, there's negligible systemic exposure, even with maximum use studies which put on more than what you typically use. Uh, so systemic safety signals we weren't concerned about. But what about the discussions about folliculitis and, you know, contact irritation, what the things that, you know, tended to come up in discussion the most? What's your, what's your feeling about those? And how do you manage them if you do see them? Yes. Um, so overall, I think, you know, if you look at the safety of tapinarov in general, it's very well tolerated. And folliculitis rates uh, tend to occur around a little over 10% uh, in the study population. Uh, but most of those were mild or moderate in terms of their severity. And uh, when it was systematically uh, looked at in terms of discontinuation from the folliculitis, that was uh, around between 1% to 1.8%. So uh, patients discontinuing the medication due to folliculitis is actually uh, pretty low. Uh, clinically, when you're looking at this you know, from the real world uh, from our patients, it's, I would say, less of a folliculitis picture. Uh, folliculitis was a term in clinical trials that's, you know, included in the clinical trial kind of medra uh, uh, umbrella terms. But in the real world, they appear as these um, KP-like, uh, keratosis pilaris-like lesions. Yeah, it's little small follicular papules yes. in the, around mm-hmm. the area where you're applying the drug. Um, and my understanding is... is um, a couple of the researchers that have used a lot of this, of you know, even colleagues in Canada, say it typically happens if people are applying a lot more than they likely need and getting it on a lot of the surrounding skin around the site. And if you if they apply it, you know, thin layer and and not get a lot of the surrounding skin, you're less likely to see it. Has that been your impression? Yes, uh, that's been my impression. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, I was one of the investigators in the study. I think in the real world, uh, patients actually 
uh, when, when I look at the lesions when they come back, um, the ones that I would think, you know, there may be some KP lesions, most patients actually don't recognize that uh, because because of the underlying psoriasis that's there. Um, so I typically actually, one doesn't need to treat it, the, the small KP like uh, uh, spicules in the area because um, uh, many, many cases actually will go away with continued treatment. Uh, but in the, t- in the times that need to be treated, I use more standard kind of folliculitis type of regimen, a little bit of B- BP wash, some Clinda, and that can be helpful in terms of uh, uh, making that go away. And, you know, so that, you know, folliculitis doesn't mean they have staphylococcal or streptococcal organism there or, or that it's a, you know, a, a bacterial folliculitis. It's just that there's a a follicular lesion there. And folliculitis is a general term. It doesn't apply infection anyway. But just to make clear, clear, I know there was some cultures done in some of these cases, and they don't have an infectious folliculitis yes. per se. Right? Yeah. In, in clinical trials, there are only certain terms that are available to the investigators to check off. So essentially, it then was taken as sort of a basket term to include anything that may be uh, of follicular nature. And in later trials, they actually specifically looked for it and questioned about it, so they even drilled down even more. Any final thoughts or tips or pearls from your usage of topical topinarov? I will say that topinarov is a very versatile uh, medication. Uh, as a non-steroidal, it works uh, well in terms of um, on the on the thicker plaques as well as the thin ones. Um, it it does have the sort of the depth. It does have a punch in terms of uh, giving thick plaques um, the efficacy that that we are hoping for. Oftentimes, with a higher potency uh, topical steroids, it, it's it's uh, mimicking that level of efficacy, and the ability to use it daily for our patients, I think, is very convenient. Um, I would also say in our patients who are on systemic medications such as biologics or oral medications, when they have that you know one or two plaques still left. Topinarov is great to use in combination uh, with systemic agents in order to get our patients to, uh, for example, to the target that we're trying to get or to get them to clear. So it's quite convenient in that way. That's what we've been experiencing. And, you know, I practiced for many years where we really only had topical corticosteroids. We didn't even have some of the other non-steroidals, which I, I really don't think for whatever reason, irritation or just their inherent potency uh, weren't all that effective. Uh, and so we had to figure out ways to use topical corticosteroids. But now having therapies like Topinarov, there may be times where some clinicians are going to say, this is a thick plaque. I'm going to hit it hard with halobetazole or clobetazole uh, in the beginning. That's fine. But in situations where we've even done that here, we utilize that during the day and utilize the topinarov or the corticosteroid at night and topinarov during the day. Uh, and then after 10 days, two weeks or so, can stop the corticosteroid and keep the topinarov going. If people want to do that, I don't see any problem with that, even though it's not on label per se. What's your thought on that situation? I agree. I think there are many different ways of using Topinarov, and sometimes we do have very thick plaques that we know would, for example, respond quite well initially to the very high to- potent uh, topical steroids. So I think in those cases, knocking it out with a 
highly potent, super potent topical steroids, which we know cannot be used long term first, and then transition to Tepinarov. I think it's a fine strategy. Do you transition in weight or do you use the Tepinarov with the corticosteroid from the outset? Yeah, I typically actually um, would uh, give both in terms of prescription, but when I, my instructions uh, for them is to, uh, you know, for those super thick plaques uh, would be to have the patients use the super potent corticosteroid first and then transition to Tepinarov. Um, but I, I would prescribe those both simultaneously in those selected circumstances. So that they get both prescriptions. So yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Very good. So April, I know you're very busy. In addition to your dermatology work, you have three kids at home, your two sons and your husband that uh, <laughs> you, you, you have to, you have to manage on, a, on a, on a daily basis of, of, you know, your husband's a great guy. I've met him. So I'll let you get back to your job and your family. And I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at D-E-R-M squared.com podcast at dermsquared.com this episode was supported by dermavan